Tonight's lecture, Can the Law Keep Up With Changes in Society? And I confess, this has been one of the hardest and most thought-provoking ones I have had to prepare, because it sits really as a bookend to the lecture I gave this time last year about the Children Act, and you, you may remember that I concluded that it was a piece of legislation that had withstood the pressure of time really well and was very much fit for purpose because it had been interpreted in accordance with the needs of society and the structure was there in the legislation to enable to do so. Tonight's lecture is much more wide-ranging. It's really my personal take on things that have vexed, worried or made me think over the course of the last year. So it's going to be a Joe smorgasbord of things to think and reflect on. So, what, when I talk about law, and when I talk about whether law is fit for purpose, what do I mean by it? Because my interpretation of what it is might be very different from yours. So this slide effectively sets out the way I'd like you to think about the way I'm thinking about the issues coming forward. Law, for me, is something which can shape political social thought. It is something which regulates the social behaviour between us and citizens, effectively reflecting the majority will of our society so that the minority, when they transgress it, know that there are consequences and the majority can be protected from having to impose any type of private order upon those that transgress the norms. It reflects the life of society um, that it's uh, there to control because if it doesn't reflect the society it's there to serve, it won't have respect. And if it doesn't have respect, it won't be obedient. And if you don't have obedience, then you have disobedience and then the rule of law and the system of government collapses. It can also drive behavioural expectations ahead of those that society may effectively express at the time. So I'm thinking about capital punishment, which was very much a decision which was taken by those in the interest of society even though there may have been a larger proportion of the public who weren't quite behind the argument at the time. On a smaller scale, it might be when corporal punishment was um, made unlawful in private schools. It's something which can make a decision for the general good on the basis of looking ahead for society. My other definition, it can catalyse social transformation. So it can be an agent for positive change. So in that category, I'm thinking of the type of laws we have which prohibit discrimination against a person by virtue of their gender or by their sexuality. It can be a positive tool for self-promotion of those minorities who otherwise wouldn't be respected within our society. So it should cover the rights of someone to have, have a relationship with a gender of the person they wish instead of that being um, forbidden by society and by the rules of the law. And by virtue of having those type of rules, it positively reflects in the community the type of standards of behaviour we, we expect. So when I'm talking about the rule of law, I'm thinking about law as operating as a disciplinary measure, as a positive enforcer for change, and as a creative catalyst so that society drives itself forward in a more constructive way where the majority um, drives the good of society. So over the course of the last year, we have had an extraordinary number of issues which have reflected not just um, themselves in the papers, but in public discussion, but also in the law courts. So this is really for you just to think about what you might have been reading and thinking about last year, and by no means is it a full visual catalogue. But think about Alfie, think about Charlie Gard, 
Think about those who were picketing outside the Royal Courts of Justice and at the hospitals. Think about the lecture I gave last year where I was seeking to explain how the courts try to deal with that difficult balance between the right of the parent to make a choice for their child in terms of their medical care, but the right of the child to have the best treatment which may not accord with the, child's, uh, with the parent's wishes. Think about Brexit. Think about how that hearing on the prorogation of Parliament gripped the nation and was being beamed across the world. And think about how, by being so visual, we developed the icon of the spider, which then became something which women and men were using as a, as, very much as a symbol of empowerment and pride in there being advancement of women in society. Think about what we do about surrogacy. Think about how what we understand now about the classic family, which used to be a male-female binary relationship, is now so much freer. Think about same-sex marriage. Formerly it was civil contract, now the right to be able to marry to a partner of your choice regardless of their gender. So when I talk about law being something which is absolutely embedded in the way we live our lives, it's those type of issues that I am reflecting on. So I'm going to start off um, talking effectively about domestic violence because when I'm talking about the purpose of law in society, I wanted to start off with the most intimate of things, which is your relationship in your home. Because unless we get the opportunity to be safe and well within the privacy of our four walls, everything we do thereafter is going to flounder through a lack of confidence, a lack of safety and a lack of choice. So for me, what goes on within an intimate relationship is the bedrock of where we need to establish a standard of norms beyond which it's, um, it's inappropriate for someone to transgress. So domestic violence. Get a scale of the problem first. So 2.4 million adults experience domestic abuse, and this is from figures 2019. What those figures don't tell us is what the proportion is of female to male violence and same-sex violence. And we don't know that because there is a stigma and the shame about acknowledging both of those where you fear ridicule or disbelief if you would go to the police. So they are the absolute statistics, but I fear may not be the most accurate ones. But what happens once you've taken the step to go and report an incident of abuse? Well, at the police station, we can see there's 746,000 dog, which is an increase for 24% from the previous year. But look what happens in terms of once those uh, reports are made. Why is it that there are 32 arrests per 100? Is that because the complainant doesn't wish to go forward, or is that because the police decide that there isn't enough evidence to proceed? Because if it is the case that we've got a 24% increase in reported incidents, why is it that we still only have a 74% um, charge rate and a 77% conviction rate? Now, I would like to know, come next year, whether that increase in reportals means that we've got an increase in referrals with positive decisions to charge made by the CPS and we get an accordant increase by convictions um, when the matter goes to trial. So for me, literally, the jury is out. What do we mean in terms of protection of victims? What I've shown you so far has been the statistics that deal with what happens when a complainant goes to the police. But that's only dealing with seeking to punish, identify and punish the alleged offender. 
That doesn't deal with protection. Protection terms, I think it's a relatively grim picture. You can see here local authority spending on um, refugees went down significantly. We've got referrals that are being declined at an increased proportion. So what that tells me, in addition with a 24% increase of reports to the police, is that there is a problem which is growing within our community, which austerity has not assisted us to assist those who are fleeing violence and need assistance and help. Talking about protection, what about the family courts? We have problems in the family courts because our legislation, as I'll explain, hasn't kept up with what is required and what we know is um, working in the criminal courts. We know that three in five um, uh, women have said that when they do go to court to seek protection for domestic violence, then their experience there is not a positive one. They don't feel protected by the environment they are greeted with. They don't feel protected within the courtroom itself. And a quarter of the complainants, when in proceedings, feel very deeply that they are likely to be disbelieved when they raise their allegations. In my sphere, as you know, in the family courts, I'm more concerned with what happens to the children within an abusive relationship because that's my focus in terms of consequential and sequential damage. But the concern that all of us would have when we think about the experience of women or men if they make complaints is how can we make sure that the best evidence is given in court to enable the judge to make the right decision? Because unless the person making a complaint or unless the person resisting the complaint is able to give their best in court, the danger is the judge can't make the right decision and that has profound consequences for the family. If they decide, for example, that a woman hasn't been raped or a child hasn't witnessed domestic violence, then they may grant unsupervised contact or possibly grant extended contact and stay in contact to the father, exposing the children and the mother to continued abuse from someone who is actually a risk to them. If, on the other hand, they believe the mother and find that the allegations of rape are so serious that it, the contact of the father should be seriously conscribed, then what about the relationship between the father and the child when, in fact, it's a healthy one and should be promoted and when the child is living with someone who has um, manipulated the court process in order to exclude someone valuable from their lives? So it's in the interest of everyone to make sure that when a complaint is made, the environment in court is arranged so that the best evidence can be given for whatever end there is. Now, we need to take heed, I think, of those who criticise the family justice system for the way in which it deals with um, complainants. There's no point me reading out this slide. You can read it there. But what bleeds through the words on the page is the, is the anger and the frustration and the sense of not being listened to by those who go to help from the women's aid and those who uh, are there to assist others. And there are good grounds for that to happen. You may remember the case of um, Claire um, Thrussell from Sheffield. She was someone who went through the family court system. She was cross-examined. The consequence of that experience was that the father of her children had contact which led to the death of her children. When we make mistakes, the consequences are profound. I'm not saying this in any type of radical way. I am simply one barrister amongst a whole host of senior judges who have, for the past decade, certainly since 2004, uh, 2014, been repeatedly complaining that they have not been given the legislative, tool, le legislative tools they require 
in order to protect those who are most in need in their courts. Mr Justice Hayden had this to say, and again, I shan't read it out. If you read the words, they will resonate with you. How can it possibly be that we are in a system whereby a judge of the family division says that by virtue of the job he is doing, he, because he's unable to protect an alleged victim of domestic abuse, is effectively compounding the abuse she has suffered. He's not the only judge, by any means. I've chosen his words because they were ones that struck me as being some of the most powerful. Mr James Mumby, who was our former president from 2014 through to 2016, repeatedly said that he was not being given the assistance he required. We thought the legislation was going to be passed in 2017 that enabled the family court to have the same ability to prevent cross-examination of a victim by their alleged abuser. But when the election was called, the bill went back into the long grass and it still hasn't been adjudicated, litigated upon. So in the meantime, what has to happen? Well, the family division doesn't stand still. It is very much engaged with the welfare of those that appear in front of it. And so it created two, effectively, means by which it could try to support and get the best decision-making out of the court process. And they are naturally called Practice Direction 12J and Family Procedure Rules Part 3A. All you need to know from those initials is their combined purpose is intended to provide the ability of someone complaining of abuse to have an experience in court which enables them to give their best evidence. So, for example, special measures are arranged, which means that someone can give evidence behind a screen so that they don't have to give evidence seeing the person they suggest may have seriously sexually abused them. They can have intermediaries to make sure that they're able to understand the questions and give their best evidence. With advance notice, we can make sure that we organise the courtroom so that we can mediate when people come in and when they come out and there aren't unnecessary people there. We have rules and measures by which we can look at the case and hear from the litigants and decide if someone is a vulnerable person and there's a careful definition about it. And if they are, then the court rules should swing and embrace them to make sure that they're able to give their best account. <coughs> so we have the guidance there, we have the rules there, we have the training there. And it is therefore with huge regret that last week we had these headlines. There is no point having the rules and the guidance there if those who are entrusted to apply them don't read them, or if they do, don't understand them, or if they read them, they don't understand them and they don't apply them. It is a stain on our family justice system that this case was dealt with in this way, because the ramifications for all of those that might think of coming to court are significant. How many men or women would now be more intimidated about coming to court as a result of that uh, news coverage than they were before? And the message that needs to go out from this lecture and elsewhere is they should feel encouraged about coming forward, because the reason we know about that case is because it went to the Court of Appeal and a senior judge looked at what had happened and was absolutely focused on making sure that she identified where the flaws were as opposed to protecting her fellow judge. She gave judgment in public, she gave an excoriating judgment, and she was absolutely clear that this was something that should not happen again. 
So just to give you an indication about what can be done and what should be done and what wasn't done, so you understand the gap between what is needed and what happened, and you too can be part of making sure there's no repetition, let me just give you a few examples. In this particular instance, the mother was clearly vulnerable. She was complaining of serious rape, intermarital rape, by her husband. She uh, was able to give a graphic account on paper as to what had happened, and it would have been an intimate and deeply distressing story to have recounted. She asked, unsurprisingly, that she was able to give her evidence from behind a screen. That request was denied without reasons being given, and instead of giving evidence behind a screen, she gave evidence from counsel's row, which inevitably placed her in close proximity just before um, her alleged abuser. Without any reason, and certainly without any application, when it came to the father's turn to give evidence, the judge decided he too, for reasons of feng shui and symmetry, should give evidence in the same position, not from the witness box. That meant that because he had the assistance of a Mackenzie friend, he was able to have guidance in the course of giving his answers, which of course means that the evidence is not his. It is not untainted by prompting or prompting or, or promotion by <coughs> someone else. It wasn't just that his evidence was given with assistance, but the way in which the mother gave evidence was given in such a way that she couldn't be properly heard by the judge. And the evidence she did give was compromised by a degree of anxiety which was visible to him as it was to her lawyer. You would have thought that was bad enough. And Russell J said, in fact, frankly, it was. On that basis of loan, she would have said that the trial was unfair and needed to be reheard. But there was a litany of failures that continued. And the reason it's important for this to be said is that we need to reaffirm what the basis of consent is because otherwise there is an unexpected, unnecessary wheeling back of what we understand is appropriate within domestic relationships. So reflect on what was said by the judge at first instance in this case. Focus on the words. The mother did nothing physically to stop the father. She could have made life harder for the father, she didn't. And then she didn't make a complaint. So what does that mean? Does that mean you've got to fight back? Does that mean that being so terrified, being in a position of submission, that if you decide it's safer for you just then and in the aftermath to do nothing, does that mean you're consenting? Of course it doesn't. If you don't make a complaint to the police, does that mean it didn't happen? Of course it doesn't. There are very many reasons, as we know, why complaints are not made to the police all of which in no way go to underestimate the experience the victim would have had. What else? On this quote, it is clear by the judge at first instance that he was aware that the mother at some point in the course of rape had said, I'm not happy for it to continue. If he was aware from her account, why did he not cross-apply it to whether the husband was aware? Why, in any event, is it right to put a woman in a position whereby she is required to persist in an act which is against her will? Why is it that she has to say, in the way that the judge describes, stop and no more, when in fact her account was that she had done so? It's the type of retrospective rolling back of what we understand rape to be 
that made this case such a dangerous one to go um, unnoticed and unchallenged. But the value of the family justice system was that someone did challenge it. The value of the family justice system was it was called to account. The value of the justice system is that, as we know, there will now be enhanced training given to judges, not simply on the procedural requirements of the rules I've mentioned, but on their application, understanding why they are relevant. And that is long overdue and a welcome stance. My concern, if I'm to be brutally frank with you, is what happens in cases where there isn't a lawyer for one of the complainants? What happens in private law cases where often the parties are unrepresented? What happens if the matter isn't brought to public attention? What happens then in front of a judge who's equally unaware of what the standard is that should be applied? Because our understanding of what's abusive is increasing. It's no longer simply such acts as rape or marks such as to leave bruising <coughs> on your face, on your body. It's also things like controlling and co uh, coercive behaviour. And if we are thinking about what that means, I shan't trouble you with definitions, but practical terms, it means effectively from using a system of behaviours by one person to another that subordinates them, that controls them, by acts that may not be obvious to anyone outside but to them have a profound effect. It can be controlling money, it can be controlling their phone access, it can be asking to look at their phone, it can be tracking them on the phone. It can be little acts over a long period of time that mean nothing individually but collectively lead to there being an oppressive relationship which reduces the element of choice in the person who has been subjected to them. And it can have profound effects because over a period of time it can diminish the person's ability to make choices and as we know from this case it can be something where the person who is a victim of it reacts against violence in the end because they cannot control it any longer. And the reason that Sally Challen is up here is because she's an example of someone who was experiencing those matters, who had gone to prison for murder when her account of her previous experience was, was disregarded. Not because I'm sure the jury, the judge, in any way thought that they were necessarily um, outside the range of what could be expected in a relationship, but they didn't, they didn't equate them to abusive behaviour. We now have a far broader understanding of what coercive, controlling behaviour is than we did some ten years ago. This is what um, she had to say about her experiences. The justice system needs to listen. A lot of the problem is that women don't know they're in a relationship of coercive control. And I thought this was really telling. It's family, friends and relatives who do see it. It's the outsiders, effectively, isn't it? They have to speak to the person and convince them to leave because basically the ability to try to break that tie is such a difficult hurdle to overcome. Too often we hear of men and women in that situation being told, why don't you leave? Well, if it was that easy, they would have done a long time ago. But that's a hard ask from someone who's lost confidence in the ability to make a choice. So what do we need? We need for there to be greater protection and understanding. We need the domestic abuse bill that has been so long talked about with cross-party support to come forward into Parliament and to be passed. It was this bill that Brexit and prorogation delayed. It has been this bill that's been on the waiting wings of um, the statute books now since 2017. It is essential that when it goes through, as it must do over the course of this term, that it's the right type of measure in order to address what is needed. 
And what's noticeable here is that while at last we get some protection in the family courts, which enable the justices to stop the abusive behaviour described by Hayden Jay, where an abuser is able to cross-examine the victim. What we don't get is parity in terms of the support, the statutory production in terms of domestic abuse, and we don't get the special measures there um, as an automatic entitlement which needs to be rebutted. So where are we with domestic and violence and the law? Well, family legislation lags behind that in crime. Laws and guidance in family cases are effective only if the judge understands and embraces them. And I think we have to question whether the police and the CPS attitude towards victims amounts to a proper understanding of what coercive and controller behaviour is because we have to grapple with why there is a disjunct between the number of complaints and the number of successful convictions. Any of you hearing the news today would have heard about the concern about the degree of rape convictions there are. This will be an ongoing problem unless we properly grapple with it. We know that support for victims in the community has gone down. So how do we expect there to be any type of recovery period, any type of ability to get, give your best evidence or to make a complaint if, in fact, you have nowhere to go and the place you are is as unsafe as that which has led to your situation of abuse and vulnerability? We also know that we need to expand our definition and understanding about what abuse comprises. We can no longer think of it as a binary system of abuse by a male upon a woman, and we must positively embrace and increase our understanding about what type of abuse can happen. And we have to ask why the law has lagged so far behind what's happening in our society. Because if we don't listen to organisations like Women's Aid, if we don't listen to organisations that are telling us what's going on the ground, then we are not going to move forward. And that applies just as much to child sexual abuse. You may remember a lecture I gave a few months ago where I was talking about the hideous nature of child sex abuse and in particular sexual child exploitation of those children who haven't been removed from home because they were deemed to be unsafe there were placed in local authority care, euphemistically called, and from that place of purported safety were in fact targeted in order to become used by a number of men for sexual exploitation. So why was it therefore that it was so depressing to read of this, which was a report published um, last week, the 22nd of January, commissioned by Andy Burnham, the mayor of uh, Manchester, because he had watched the programme, The Betrayed Girls, and wanted to understand what had happened in Manchester in the 2004s, where there'd been a similar gang system operating. And the worry of this is the similar manner of operation clearly existed in Bradford as it did in Manchester, which is the very fact that young girls in the main, that some boys, the very fact that they were vulnerable, taken away from home, meant that they were targets for men who identified them as people who, one, they'd be more easy to manipulate, two, would be more easily taken in by apparently blandishments, gifts, which then ended up being something to be turned against them, and thirdly, if they said something, wouldn't be believed. How many more instances have we got languishing in our cupboards? It cannot really be right that we are still discovering mistakes this number of years on, because the consequences for those girls they went from teenagers into adulthood without having the type of protection and care they need 
they will have gone on to have children, their abusers are still at large, and you have to query the scale of the abuse. So my question which I threw out in the course of preparing this lecture is how much more do we need to have to learn about our mistakes of the past? How often and for how long do we have to go on apologising for them before we properly have a system which recognises what the level of care is that is required for our vulnerable children? And when I was considering what type of abuse needed to be protected from, it's not simply the type of large-scale abuse that happens on an industrial scale. It's abuse that happens within the home because our ability of adults to understand the world in which our children are operating falls behind their ability to grasp technology as instinctively as they do. So if there is no age below which one can safely say a child is not at risk of exploitation, because in my world I encounter images of children being sexually abused from babies onwards, if there is no age below which they are safe, then why do we think there is a safe age or an age below which they're not entitled to some type of risk awareness, age appropriately so? If you think about what we need to do to protect our young, if you think about how endemic our use of social media is, if you think about how difficult it is to stop any child being exposed to social media because even if they don't have access to a mobile phone, someone else does. If you think about the type of parental controls that you need to understand how to work before you can apply them. And if you understand the algorithms that are being used by the companies who use friends of friends to make friends suggestions on the phone. Unless you understand all of that flow through data, how can you be ahead of those who are going to use social media to abuse and corrupt and manipulate our young. And that is why we need help. That is why we need assistance by, as we've now heard, the ICO, with a provision that's going to mean, when it's rolled out later this year, that the default position will be, effectively, the safeguards will be on the phone, to mean you have to actively deactivate them in order to have um, exposure to some of the algorithms. But it must go further, because it's got to look at those who administer the systems, those who make profits out of the web. There has to be accountability, does there not, for what they are circulating. Because without accountability, there is no motivation to change. We need to think seriously about how we deal with the social media. Because it is a pathway to bullying, to grooming, to drug gangs, to extremist beliefs. Every one of those things can happen through the web without there being a direct link. And certainly so far as some of the London estates are concerned, the use of young girls and boys for trafficking drugs, for moving them from place to place across what's called cross-county lines, it is the phones, it's the system of transferable data that is the means by which they become the mules, and that has to be tackled. And so my question is, where is the online harms bill? Where is this bill that, as of last year, was meant to be just at the point of being passed, which would have had consequences? And where is there the outcry amongst the public and the press for why it has languished? What is the point of us having headline after headline about boys being stabbed to death, increasingly because they have been part of a gang culture? What is the point of us having headlines about girls that are being used as trophies or as part of the payment in gangs? What is the point of the press promoting these individual stories if they don't equally 
understand that there is a mechanism and a bill there that needs to be reactivated by public and press engagement to force the politicians to act. Because the politicians don't act, I'm afraid, as often as they should, out of self-interest or community awareness. They act because they have to act, because the public require them to act. And so we need, through engagement with the press, through understanding what there is out there, to understand what we have to do for the safety of our young. So, so far I've talked about where the law, I think, has got the ability to make changes and where there is law, law there waiting to be enacted in order to make the changes we need. Another area which therefore encompasses this um, lecture is divorce and marriage. Because, again, another bill that languished because of Brexit and prolegation was the revised um, divorce bill, which would have meant that the situation that Mrs Owens found herself in were going to court seeking a divorce for a breakdown of her marriage, led to her being denied that because her husband refused to accept that the marriage was over. A case which has gone through every level of our courts, where without exception, those judges who have pronounced upon it have expressed extreme unhappiness with the outcome, but felt themselves powerless to do anything about it because they can only do what, what Parliament enables them to do, and that requires legislation. So this is another example of legislation that's waiting for action. It has gone, eventually, back before Parliament, but without there being a public outcry to make sure it's in the politicians' interest to make sure it passes through swiftly, we will continue to have sadness and an intolerable situation in our homes, which is easily remediable. I've considered the arguments about whether no-fault divorce means that it becomes effectively the termination of a contract. It's easy to finish as a tenancy. And I've considered the argument that it means that divorce will become so easy there'd be no pressure on any party to seek there to be reconciliation. And I've considered whether or not, if divorce is granted in the circumstances of no fault, that means that we are breaking up families where children are being denied having two parents. And I'm not persuaded. I'm not persuaded because, firstly, that diminishes the efforts that many parties made to stay in a relationship well before they have come to court. I'm not persuaded because for children to be caught in a trap of a loveless or a violent or an aggressive marriage causes them far more harm, I'd suggest, than having safe, ordered relationships with both parents out in a civilised relationship. I'm not persuaded that our laws are not so outdated that they can't be described as unfit for purpose. I believe they are. The law needs to change. Political instability, as I say there, has placed private lives on hold for too long and it is simply unacceptable. So it's an example, I'm afraid, of where there is the bill there. There is the motivation by the judges to apply it there. There is a desire, I believe, by the public to make it happen. But the stagnation has happened because of the lack of political will to drive it forward and where political expediency has ended up taking priority. So what else do we have to say about the workings of the private world? Um, this is darting around, but again, it's an illustration about her understanding about why a family is no longer simply a male-female um, system of organisation. We have surrogacy, we have transgender, we have a rich combination of family life 
that means that our ability to form a partnership with someone to bring up a child within it has a hugely complex background, not anticipated by our legislators 10, 15, 20 years ago. And this case, um, which um, came to the attention of our courts last year, is an illustration about how, although there is the will there to give equality to transgender parents, there is an inability by virtue of the, the, the workings of allocating parentage according to the birth certificate to reflect the reality of what the child will be growing up with. So in this instance, um, Freddie was a woman. Um, he has uh, become a man. He retained his female reductive organs and um, at a point of receiving insemination um, became pregnant and had a little boy. He has lived as a man, bringing up his child. He wishes to be identified as a man on his child's birth certificate. But the birth certificate allows any registration as either female or male. And the purpose of registering your name under that criterion is determined by the process of reproduction as opposed to the way in which the family be brought up. And it's accepted that it's a gap in the law. Now, this case will be going um, to appeal over the course of the next few months, I think in March, and there will be a live argument about whether or not the birth certificate as it is currently drafted is fit for purpose or whether it's become too outdated to be relevant. And it's those type of cases which throw up the questions we have to ask in society and in the courts about whether or not the wording of the law and the instruments of law has lagged behind what we understand to be happening in society and which we embrace within society. What else might we want to think about? How about science? How about our understanding about science and the way it affects our view about whether a child has been harmed by virtue of actual abuse or whether there's a benign condition that might be mimicking abuse? How do we, in courts, look at science to give us assistance in trying to determine the outcomes for children when the judge needs to make a decision? What standards do we apply when we're looking at behaviours and beliefs to see whether or not they are ones within a band of reasonable uh, responses that a parent is able to live their life with their belief system and bring their child up accordingly, as opposed to those beliefs which, if followed, would likely be cause harm to a child? And the reason I put this quote up was just to stand as a reminder for many of those lectures I gave in the first year of my professorship about how wide the boundary is drawn to enable people to bring their children up in the way that they wish to, only to be circumscribed, if to do so, will cause a child harm or a risk of harm. And we have this quote up here to remind us that when we make decisions as judges and when we go before judges to ask them to make decisions and we rely on science and medicine to persuade them to make a decision in our favour, we have to be acutely aware that science is ever-involving and that which we think of as certainty today may be very uncertain tomorrow. I'm old enough to remember when blood being detected at birth was thought to be a sign of trauma rather than the benign consequence of a birth, whether it be cesarean or vaginal. I'm old enough to remember well, when there was re-bleeding, it was thought of not simply as an instance of assault, but of two assaults, because if you had blood at birth and you had blood that was younger, then that must mean the baby had been injured twice, and therefore there was a failure to protect issue, which meant that two parents were in the frame. I'm old enough now to remember the shock when we had the research came through that showed us that babies at birth bleed for natural causes, 
without there being any type of um, inflicted injury or any type of excessive force. And that if a baby bleeds at birth, it creates the conditions by which you can also have a predisposition to bleeding afterwards. How many cases did we get wrong which led to children being removed because we relied on the science of the time? And there can be no fault attached to the judges that did so. They can only make decisions on what they are told. But in making those decisions, they have to be acutely aware that things may change. And we know that from EDS, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. We know that from genetic abnormalities that now have a greater chance of being detected. We know that about factitious induced illness, which you might remember better from Munchausen's by proxy. We know a lot more about the way the body works, and that enables us to make decisions about the best interests of the children in the type of cases I do. But it's more profound than that, because we are now in a situation where we understand that gender can be fluid, where gender can be a matter of self-determination and choice. And we understand that that's not simply a case of adults, but can be in relation to children. This case was an extraordinary one, which I've um, put up on screen, and it's described in more detail in the handout, because it's an illustration about how, in the hands of a very senior, very erudite, empathetic judge, there was a grasp of an issue through the use of an appropriate expert, which revealed to him that the research previously relied upon was very much out of date. Just to give you an explanation, it was the parents in this case um, were being criticised by the local authority because they had purportedly enabled the transition of two of their children from male to female at too young an age and too swiftly. And by so doing, they were deemed to have acted not in their children's best interest and, in fact, contrary to medical advice. And that was not an unreasonable position for the local authority to take because that was the established medical advice that they were being given. But they weren't being given that advice by the specialists. And the joy of the family justice system is that when it gets it right, when it chooses the experts that are there without any agenda to assist either the local authority or the parents or the guardian through the children, when we get it right, we hear the best quality evidence that it can enable a decision to change the way in which we think about things. And this is one. And that is why we need, in our courts, to be constantly alert to the fact that science is not static, just as a family is dynamic, and the two have to mesh together if we are going to make the right choices. So this is Williams J saying far more eloquently than I just have about why we need to have an eye on the changing um, and shifting stands of science and be constantly aware of the fragile nature upon which we make decisions. So where are we now, though? Because that was a happy outcome. A superb judge, a superb expert, a well-conducted hearing with erudite, committed practitioners. What happens in private law disputes where there is no legal aid? What happens in private law cases dealt with by non-junior judges who may not understand the concepts of gender realignment and dysmorphia? What happens when those cases are being heard without any barristers, any solicitors, because there is no legal aid now, except in very tiny circumstances? What happens about the training given to judges to try to make the just decision in those situations? And where does the risk factors lie for getting those very complicated issues wrong at an age where the decisions can fundamentally affect the outcome of the child? And this is an example, again, where we need to roll back the restrictions on legal aid 
for how so devastated and cut swathes through the type of access to justice that people are getting in county courts and magistrates' courts and district judges' courts since um, uh, legal aid was withdrawn. LASPO has devastated the justice system so far as family is concerned. The burden on the courts is immense. The burden on the parties engaging with it is intolerable. And when you look at the outcome, if you look at the seriousness of the outcome, then we understand that that's where we need to move. So last area. If we're talking about parental beliefs, if we are talking about what the range of things are we can tolerate within society, <coughs> what do we do about some of the most extreme views? How do we draw a line between the range of reasonable behaviours, which means you can bring your child up to be a racist? You can bring your child up to believe that being gay is immoral. You can bring your child up to believe that the person next door um, is unfit to care for anyone and you throw um, accusations and you don't live in harmony with one another because that's the way in which you've brought up. It's a wall. But when those beliefs impact on the welfare of the child, because by following them the child is exposed to harm, then the court's entitled to intervene. But there is a wide range of margin. So what do we do if we're not talking about standard strands of medical thought? For example, it's now established that for if a child uh, is in need of a blood transfusion but is born to Jehovah Witness parents, then although the parents may not wish there to be the foreign bodies imported into the child's blood, if it's a way for the child to survive, then it is likely the court will order that they are able to have that transplant because the child's right to life will exceed the parent's right to determine whether they should or shouldn't be given the treatment which might terminate that life. But what do we do when we are being asked to talk about cryogenics? What do we do when we are confronted with the type of science and COD science which has got the ability through the web to promote itself, to become a self-seeding degree of belief which is resistant to all type of education to the contrary? because it's a self-feeding belief in what is, what is necessary and it closes off exposure to anything else. Fake news. What happens when we have something such as breatharianism? I can't even say it. And what you can't see underneath here under the end of axes is worryingly, that's part one of a 25-part series. So why is that even up there? I can't say it. I suspect very many of you have never heard of it. I really hope none of you practice it. And the reason it's relevant is because it came up in a case. It came up in a case as recently as 2019. Now that is worrying. If you have a case where the parents believe, as they said here, that energy can exist in the universe and in themselves and humans can easily be without food as long as they are connected to the energy that exists in all things and through breathing, then what type of world are we living in? where that type of rubbish is being promoted through the web. Now that is up there as an example of where we will intervene, because not only is that patently illogical, unsustainable, physically impossible, morally unsustainable and dangerous, but it is quite extraordinary that parents or a parent feel able to say that that is their belief system. So that is an example a precise example about where we do have the laws because we have the right judges 
to try to understand where the balance lies between intervening in order to allow the broad range of reasonable beliefs to be uh, part of our um, diverse society, but intervening when they are so outside the bound of reasonable responses that to allow them to be promoted means to cause harm. So that raises questions about how far we are alert to differing beliefs within a multicultural society. What do we do, for example, when we have ndoki, a practice of witchcraft imported into our shores? What do we do when we have different ideas about corporal punishment that are imported into our shores or into our communities? How do we judge? How much do we know? How broad-minded are we? When does the thought system become dangerous? When do we, when we hear news that we feel unwelcome or frightened by, when do we seriously consider whether we are reacting with proportion and measure or whether we've retreated to the medieval eras where we create uh, victims in order to abuse? I don't know where the range is, but I do know that this troubled me greatly. This was one of the hardest things to think about what I was going to say to you, because it relates to Shamima Begum. She was one of the girls, age 15, who was seen on all of your screens and all of your newspapers when she left her parents' home without notice to them to go to ISIS to become an ISIS bride when the caliphate was established in 2014. We didn't know what happened to her, until, in February 19, she was tracked down in a refugee camp. So far, so good, you may think. We have an outcome. We have an ending. But the ending we had, without exception, by the broad streets, was to look at her and to judge what she had done without thinking about why she had done it age 15, whether she had been a victim of grooming, whether she deserved what had happened, whether she had learnt by it, but more particularly, whether the charge she had and was about to bear deserved to have nothing more than a death waiting for him if he remained in the camp where Shamima was. Now, I understand how that debate flowed in the press. I understand the horror, the anger, that someone who had left our shores in 2014 wanted to come back. What I didn't understand was how this young woman was on display through the televised system, being seen opening the very letter that took away her citizenship. What I didn't understand was how we turned something that should be private into a public spectacle where everyone had an opinion. What I didn't understand was why no one was considering when in that period she had a three-week-old baby born to a British mother before her citizenship had been stripped of her, what the rights were of that child to be brought to a place of safety, and why in demonising her we were neglecting to think about the innocent in the whole process and what we should do. And this mob mentality was a deeply troubling one. There will be nothing that Piers Morgan will ever say that I will agree with, but this is an example of something which is shaming to be reported. They have sex with them. Note the word they. At what point is it right to talk about a woman as they? At what point is it right to talk about our gender as they? They have sex with them. They breed with them. At what point is it right to talk about a woman breeding 
at what point is it right to animalise what is a natural thing to do in a relationship? They cook for them. Well, that's clearly acceptable. They clean for them. That's clearly acceptable. They love them and they worship them. And while they're doing this, their husbands are busy raping, torturing, stoning, beheading and murdering people. Now, predictably, they both want to return to the safety of their original countries and live at our taxpayers' events, to which I say, and excuse my language here, but sometimes it's entirely appropriate, go F yourselves. With that type of sentiment being published in association with those newspaper reports, how well can we properly say that we are able to reflect on what we should do as a civilised society? So, what's my end note tying together? I did say it was a smorgasbord and I'd be darting around. I tried vaguely to think there was a theme starting within the home, moving to what creates a home, moving to what can harm a home, moving to what we say is not a home and shouldn't be a home. But in fact, actually, it was simply a dart through things that have entertained me, interested me, vexed me, angered me, made me think over the past year. But what do I have to say about it ultimately? I would say legislation moves more often than not at a languid pace that politics imposes. And it's at the pace of the politicians. It's a, a pace which is entirely outstripped by the demands of society. It was shown by Brexit, where so many vital bills were just put onto the back burner without any guarantee about when they would come back. I think it is entirely lagging behind our need in society to have rules that we can apply with guidance that we respect at a point where we understand that we can trust those people who are our legislators and who make the decisions and i think it exposes to us that we can't be complacent about our rule of law we have to make sure that those who deliver it are as well trained as they can be where beliefs that may be harbored under the veneer of civilization are flushed out if, in fact, they are not commensurate with what is appropriate in our day and age. And that requires there to be an honest debate and engagement. I think that we deserve more from our legislature. I think that if we don't move faster and if we don't use our voices effectively, then we risk miscarriages of justice. I think there is more we can do. I think we are adjutants in ourselves. I think we can make changes by being vocal and by talking and by being erudite and being thoughtful and being respectful. And I think that we have to work on making our laws just. We have to make on making our laws current. We have to work on making our lawmakers as current with the society that they seek to serve. And we have to make sure that when there are things to be done in the community that has appointed politicians to pass the legislation in the community better interests, that we keep the pressure up on them to do so. Because the question I posed at the beginning of the lecture was, has the law kept up with the demands of society? And in the main, clearly it has. We are not in a role where there is civil disobedience on the streets. But it's the small things that become big things that matter. It's the small things that affect our ability to be safe within our homes. It's the small things that means that we can be parents as we intend to bring up our children on birth certificates. It's the way in which we react to one another. It's the way in which we talk to our children. It's the way with which we treat one another with respect or should do. All of those things can go wrong if we do not keep a wary eye on what needs to be done in order to protect ourselves, 
to uphold standards of values that we wish others would expose us to and be treated by. And that means that we have to be adjutants. That means we have to be arbitrators. It means we must not be silent. It means you have a voice. I've used mine up. It's now 5-2, which means I can take questions if you want. But thank you very much up here, and thank you very much to everyone downstairs. I'd wave if I could. I'll come down and see you shortly. Thank you very much for the very close attention you have given me. And can I please apologise for the rumbling nature of my voice? This is the third night I've done an all-nighter with two hours sleep each night. And I'm currently running on builder's tea, caffeine, sweets... And if you hear a trembling in my voice, that's because the next thing I need is alcohol, frankly. <laughs> uh, so thank you for bearing with me.